it all started with a small-time dream. Hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker? And with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages, do we want to? With these two questions, The Mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to thementionables.org to get your tickets, or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables. Small-time voices, big-time noise. Come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're talking about the world of archaeology. It's been a while since we've done some of that. I think it was a year or two or so ago, we had uh, Craig Evans on talking about his book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day. Uh, today, we're going to be going a bit further back than Jesus. We're going to be talking about topics from the Old Testament, like the Exodus. Is there any reason to believe that actually happened? Or the Conquest? Don't we have some uh, problems with the idea of the Conquest? And in order to do it, I wanted to bring on someone who's very familiar with the world of archaeology and who has presented this before, even going so far as to uh, debate Robert Price on the Exodus in Unbelievable, and that's Ted Wright. He is a freelance teacher, writer, researcher, and founder of EpicArchaeology.org. For over a decade, he has been a speaker on Christian projects as well as biblical archaeology across North America and internationally. In addition to public speaking, he was a former executive and teaching director of CrossExamine.org. He has also appeared on numerous television and radio programs, including the History Channel TV miniseries Mankind, The Story of All of Us, as well as CNN's 2015 documentary on the historical resurrection of Jesus, Faith, Jesus, Faith, Fact, Forgery. In addition, Ted has served as adjunct professor of projects at Southern Evangelical Seminary, as well as Charlotte Christian College and Theological Seminary, where he has taught for over a decade. Ted has a BA in Anthropology, in Archaeology from Macabre Institute of Archaeology, BA in Anthropology and Archaeology from Macabre Institute of Archaeology at Mississippi State University. As an undergraduate, Ted worked as a research lab assistant on Phase 3, 1992-99, of the Lahav Research Project from Tel Halif, Israel. Ted also has an MA in Christian Apologetics with a concentration in philosophy from Southern Evangelical Seminary. 
to participate as an assistant square supervisor in the 2014 excavation at Kerbet Air Makatir, the biblical city of I, if ABR Associate for Biblical Research. Ted researches and writes for Epic Archaeology as well as his personal blog, Off the Map. Yeah. Ted, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you for having me on, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And you and I also, we've had benefit of knowing each other personally. My wife and I got to meet you one time when we were in Charlotte, and we actually talked about another area you spent some time looking at, environmentalism. Yes, yes, we did. And it, I remember your wife, and uh, you guys are doing some awesome work. And mm-hmm. yes, that's a subject that's very uh, has great interest for, for me personally. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's interested in the topic of environmentalism, go back to our first year. We had E. Calvin Beisner on from the Cornwall Alliance for steward, for Stewardship of Creation. He came on to talk about environmentalism, but today we've got a different topic. But, Ted, if my audience doesn't know much about you, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? <laughs> oh, it's a great question, Nick. Um, you know, it's sort of a little bit of a, a hodgepodge of a lot of things, actually. Um, my interest in history kind of goes back to, uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I was actually in Cub Scouts many, many years ago when I was a kid. And uh, like many young men, you know, growing up in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, you go to, you visit some really cool historical places. And one of the first places I visited is a, a Civil War battlefield called Shiloh Battlefield. It's one of the bloodiest battles in the American Civil War. Um, on one day of battle, about twenty-two to 23,000 men fell and died in battle. So it's one of the bloodiest battles in the American Civil War. And I uh, visited that battle site several times, but it had a really big impact on me as a kid. And then also I got to visit some Indian mounds and uh, just really piqued a, a great interest in, in me personally for, for history, American history and just history in general and archaeology. And then uh, later on, um, uh, I've got to admit, Nick, <laughs> uh, you know, I've talked about this before. One of our one of my favorite movies is Indiana Jones. And I'll, I'll, I'll just confess that right now and be up front. I, I do love Indiana Jones. And when the movie came out in 1981, uh, the first Indiana Jones movie, my mom took me to see it with my dad. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, I, I didn't realize how cool it would be to be an archaeologist. But, of course, you know, as a movies, you know. But uh, later on, uh, I, went, I joined the U.S. Air Force. I served about four years in the U.S. Air Force. And when I got out, I wanted to go back. You know, I knew what I, was, I wanted to major in, and, and that was archaeology. So um, I wanted to pick a subject that was going to interest me for the rest of my life that I would never get bored with. And uh, it just stayed with me all those years, and I've never never looked back. And it's just, in fact, it just it's just gotten more and more fascinating as, as the years have gone on. So how proficient are you with a whip? <laughs> uh, not that much. I, I need to practice on my whip skills. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you remember from when I lived in Charlotte, my roommate was David Sorrell. I'm not sure if you remember him. but Yes, I know David. He's a great friend, yes. Yes, and he's an Eagle Scout as well. So when you talk about being a Cub Scout, I thought, mm, David, I hope you're listening to this. Oh yeah, I didn't make it to Eagle. Actually, I got to I got to the Life Merit Badge, uh, Life, and uh, Life is right below Eagle Scout. But I didn't quite make it to Eagle. I wish I I wish I would have went went ahead and finished that. Uh, I know David's told me about a place that he likes as a scout. Things called Philmont. Or yes, yes, out in Arizona, that's a uh, Philmont Scout Ranch. Yeah. Yep. And with the Indiana Jones, I remember when I start talking about the show, I sent you that clip of the Big Bang Theory about the Raiders of the Lost talk about how Indiana Jones plays no outcome whatsoever <laughs> no <laughs> the outcome whatsoever of the movie. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rip from without him. I know. The Nazis find Bjork and everybody dies just like they did. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but it made for a good movie, though, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when we see something like Indiana Jones, it could get people to wonder about the spirit. What exactly is archaeology? I mean, most people probably anticipate it's probably not going through, uh, through the Middle East with a whip beating bad guys and such. What is it? No, it's not. Um, but you know that that's a, that is a fantastic question. Um, and at, at bare bones, a bare bones definition of archaeology would be really a, a study of the past uh, by material by studying material artifacts that that are left behind by past human cultures. Um, so you know when when cultures when people. You sort of, you know, when the, the city goes into ruin uh, and, and is left behind, an archaeologist studies primarily the material artifacts that are left behind. Um, historically, archaeology can be defined different ways in different times. And so today, archaeology is multidisciplinary. So you have a lot of people that are involved in an archaeological dig. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have a geologist. You may have a, a botanist. A paleobotanist, you may have a me. So it's it's multidisciplinary. A lot of a lot of the different sciences are involved, uh, but there is someone who is sort of directing the scene on the excavation, and that would be the you know the dig director. Uh, but archaeology, it really is a study of the past by studying the material remains of past human cultures. That's how I sort of define it loosely. Now we are talking about biblical archaeology day, but archaeology does apply to more than just the Bible, doesn't it? Absolutely, uh, Nick. It sure does. In fact, uh, archaeology is, is, you know, relatively speaking, as a science, it's it's fairly young. I mean, it's only been around for a little over a hundred years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, there's a lot of uh, historians of archaeology who, you know, might uh, pinpoint it differently. I mean, some go some go far as far back as even ancient Persia, because obviously there were civilizations that that existed back then. But scientific archaeology has been around since probably the early 20th century. Uh, when archaeologists began to look at uh, these uh, remains in the Middle East in a more scientific and a systematic way, uh, and primarily uh, the use of you know stratigraphy, paying attention to the different layers that are found, and also the pottery and how pottery styles change over time. So uh, it's gotten to be more scientific. And now, I mean, we're into uh, space technology where, where uh, archaeologists are using drones. There's even an archaeologist in Birmingham, Alabama. <clears throat> Her name is Sarah Parchek, and she actually uh, she actually won the TED Prize. I don't know if you, I know you're familiar, Nick, with the TED Talks. It's named after and, you, uh, isn't it? it? Yes, of course. No, I wish. I think TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design, but it's. Uh, I think it started out in California. I'm not exactly sure. You know, it was really just a just little short 20 minute talks, but now it's kind of expanded, and it, they're they cover a broad range of subjects. Uh, you know, from the sciences and technology things like that. But every year they have. Uh, sort of a, a, a dream or a wish. They'll have these scientists and the, who sort of compete for something called the TED Prize. I think I think it's around a million dollars. But anyway, uh, a year or so ago, uh, an, an archaeologist actually won the prize, and she's actually an Egyptologist, and she studies ancient Egypt. But what she does is she studies. Uh, she, she's concerned with you know a lot of archaeologists are concerned with looting historical sites, and so she uses and utilizes satellite 
very high definition satellite technology to uh, see how the you know to see if sites have been looted and also to discover new mm-hmm. uh, new places that have never been discovered before. And so far, she has found some remarkable places that have never been known to archaeology before, including places in Egypt, uh, in the in the uh, jungles of South America. They found found the Inca and Mayan cities that that they didn't know exist before. And this just started in the last couple of years, and it's using again high high definition satellite imagery and they're utilizing crowdsourcing but she won the ted prize for that and the name of the the name of the website is called i think it's called global explorer and uh it's pretty amazing and you can go on that website and uh, and actually take part in in doing space archaeology so mm-hmm. so archaeology is it's come a long way you know we've we're using you know we're using all kinds of uh, analyses using electron microscopes and microscopes to look at what's what archaeologists call micro artifacts you know, uh, you know, it's a lot of Christians. A lot of you know, when we sort of have this idea of archaeology, we think of the finding the big things. You know, like a big, like the Ark of the Covenant, or you know, some big huge discovery. But a lot of really great archaeology is done in the laboratory uh, by archaeologists that are kind of working through through the lab. And I, I've done that before, and a lot of people have done that. Mm-hmm. And uh, under the microscope, you can find little small artifacts that really tell you a lot. It can tell you about the climate. It can tell you about you know what life was like in the ancient world and so uh, so our picture you know our understanding of the past is just growing as as technology sort of advances forward yeah i think people can make two mistakes i usually see from archaeology one is they expect too little from it they discount it and such the other is they expect too much they think that everything from the past should be covered somewhere in archaeology that is a great way to put it. That's exactly right. Uh, it's sort of a balance. Uh, we we don't want to we don't want to place uh, our, you know on archaeology the burden of proving everything it can't. Uh, in fact, this is a good point to bring up this this fact here, and that is that archaeology is. And like many of the sciences, it's an inductive science. So, you know, even even for biblical archaeology, when we, you know, when we make a case for certain certain things and events in the Bible, uh, we're not talking about like you know absolute logical pro- you know certainty. Mm-hmm. We're talking about inductive science. So, so it's a it yields a probable result. But you know, you can you can place your uh, you know your confidence in the biblical text with a very high degree of probability mm-hmm. because of you know because of archaeology. Yeah, I think one example of this is I I have a Christian history devotion, or and I was reading it yesterday, and it was the anniversary of the death of Sir William Ramsay, and he had started his studies, being that Acts was written about 150 or so, and he was an atheist, and he set out to do his studies, and through archaeology, he decided that conclusion was wrong, and he ended up becoming a Christian. That's right. That is exactly right. He's a classic example of, of, of what archaeology can do. In fact, Nick, when I, um, I've taught archaeology for about, I'd say, 14 years or so, and every time I, every time I teach a class on archaeology or biblical archaeology, I, I learn something from students. The students really help me to, to understand the subject because they ask great questions, and it forces me to really uh, understand the subject. But one of the things that I've seen through the years, and, and I've been teaching this, and I can see that it, archaeology does can do three things. It can it can affirm, it can clarify, and it can illuminate. And the, the last two are sort of closely related. But So archaeology can act as a 
sort of it can say yes we there's evidence of this no there's not evidence of this or uh we don't have enough evidence yet so it can so it can act as a sort of an affirmation uh for historical sources so for example we, if we have two historical sources that are conflicting uh archaeology can sometimes oftentimes settle the debate between two conflicting historical sources uh one example i'll give on that would be um for example, in in one of my popular talks in archaeology, I, I talk about the uh, about the Titanic, uh, you know, disaster in 1912. You know, everyone knows about this uh, ship that this famous ship that went down. They hit the iceberg and it's made well, in the age of millennials, we might not want to say everybody knows about this. There's reports that some people <laughs> don't know about this. That's true. Well, then I'll bring up the, the movie The Titanic with Leonardo DiCaprio. Maybe people know that one. <laughs> but, the, but the movie is actually based on an actual historical event, uh, that there really was a ship, a very famous ship called the Titanic, that went down, struck an iceberg on its maiden voyage and went down. But uh, So, of course, it, it was holding a lot of people, a couple of thousand people on board, and only, I think, I want to say, off the top of my head, I can't remember. I want to say it was around 700 or 1,000 people survived. It was a very small number. Uh, a lot of people perished on that. But the people that survived went into the lifeboats, and there were conflicting eyewitness accounts uh, when the ship went down. Uh, and I'm not sure what the ratio is, but some of the people, some of the eyewitnesses said that the ship broke in half when it sank. And the other half would say that the ship just went down, just sort of just – you know, it took a couple of hours once the once the front end got filled with water, and then the back end it started the back the back end of the boat tilted up in the air, and as it began to sink uh, again, some people said it broke in half, it just split in two, and the other people said that it stayed intact. So we have here we have an example of two conflicting eyewitness accounts in history, and so the only way that we can settle the, that debate uh, over historical sources or over these conflicting eyewitness accounts is to actually go to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And that's exactly what uh, happened in 1987. Uh, uh, an oceanographer named Dr. Robert Ballard actually uh, went to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and uh, using some very high-tech uh, equipment and technology discovered the wreck of the Titanic. And what he discovered is that the ship was actually broken in half, exactly confirming the witnesses who said that the ship broke in half. Um, so the other lesson to learn from that example in the Titanic is that um, even though you have two conflicting eyewitness reports, they both agree on the centrality of the, the, of the major event, and that is that the ship went down. They may have disagreements about some of the details, and the archaeology can confirm, or at least in this case confirmed, that the eyewitness was uh, you know, who said the ship broke in half was correct. Uh, but they both agreed, both of the eyewitnesses agreed that the ship went down. Mm-hmm. And we could we could say the same thing in the gospel accounts, too. You know, you know not everything in archaeology, or not everything in the New Testament, rather, has been confirmed by archaeology. But I will say this, every major New Testament city, as well as uh, historical personages, has been either discovered or known through archaeology or, or other historical sources that are not mentioned in the Bible. So mm-hmm. so it's a so it's a very so far it's been a very historically accurate document. Yeah, I, I think one of the things we need to say about people are saying it spent it uh that they expect too much from it. And that's I sometimes dear if I was annoying people are known as Jesus mythicist who expect there has to be direct archaeological evidence for Jesus. Uh, that's the case for very, very few people in the ancient world, isn't it? 
Right. I know. Exactly. They have a their view. Uh, these Jesus mythicists um, are almost and I haven't really studied the issue that much in detail, but they sound a lot like to me like. Uh, in the Old Testament scholarship, uh, is something called the Copenhagen School of, of Biblical Interpretation. Mm-hmm. And these Copenhagen scholars, they're, uh, a couple of them come from Denmark, uh, Niles Peter Lemke, and uh, I forget the other guy's name off the top of my head. But anyway, they have this radical view of history, not just history, but any kind of, any kind of text. Uh, that, In other words, it's soon, as soon as it's written down, then it loses its objectivity. The problem is that if you if that's your philosophy of literature or any kind of writing, you know whether it's historical writing or what, then as soon as they write down their book, you know, a, a, you know, a week later, then we can't trust anything they say, and we can't, you know, they don't want they want objectivity with their book, you know. So why why can't we, uh, you know, claim objectivity for any other historical writing? But you know, beyond that, there is great historical and archaeological evidence. For the Old, the Old Testament and the New Testament. I remember Tim McGrew once told me about how when we expect to merge one exam member is that an event, for us to receive record of an event, first off, the event had to have happened. That's an obvious step one. Yep. Second, someone had to write about that event. And we forget in the ancient world, Writing something down wasn't exactly the best way to tell people about it because it was timely, expensive, and it could only reach people who could read. Using just word of mouth was the best way to tell people about things, so we're getting very literal from the written record, but we're still getting a whole lot of things. But now, that's step two. Now now did someone have to record it, but that recording, that document, has to last to our time. Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. That is exactly right, and in uh, you know, historians, I mean, archaeologists, sort of, it's interesting because it archaeology is sort of an auxiliary to history. Um, the the two, it's sort of a loose. I mean, there's there is a difference. There's a formal difference between archaeology and history because archaeologists primarily study material remains, whereas historians are studying text or manuscripts or historical inscriptions, but. There, one of the things that, that we talk about in, in academics, in academics, historiography is the science of writing history, and uh, the best way I can describe it Ted, to laymen Ted, is for – Can yes. you start again with one of the things we talk about? You seem to cut out for a little bit. Okay. Yeah, uh, one of the things we talk about is uh, historiography. Or, or write the writing of history, and mm-hmm. that's the science of, of how we know the past. And the best way I can describe that for, for laymen who have never studied historiography, it's really actually pretty simple and, and straightforward. And it's there are actually three sources. Historians call these primary sources, and there are three primary sources, and uh, Tim is right. There's, uh, of course, you have to have the event. That's sort of a given. You know, Obviously, history, the question then is history everything that's ever happened in the past, or is history – that which we have access to, and obviously mm-hmm. we can't know every single thing. Obviously, there is a history, there is a there is a past, you know, presence of humanity on Earth, but we can't know every single solitary thing. But what we do have access to is the past as it's been ha- handed down to us through primary sources. Mm-hmm. And there are three primary sources, and the, and there are eyewitnesses, someone who was there who saw it, who recorded it, or who has a memory of it, who wrote it down later, who has some type of, you know, wrote it down. So there's historical documents. And then the third is archaeological remains. So eyewitnesses, historical documents, 
and archaeological remains. Mm-hmm. And with the with the eyewitnesses, and I know that um, uh, your uh, uh, father-in-law, uh, Mike Lacuna, talks about this in, in some of his books, and I think Dr. Craig talks about it as well. Yeah, but with I the eyewitnesses, he knows something about historiography. <laughs> yes, he does, yes. And I was just going to agree with some of the things I've heard him say, and, and I would concur with that, and that is with the eyewitnesses, what we want is we want, we want – historians really would like to have early testimony and I in uh, multiple attestation. So with the eyewitnesses, we want someone who is there as close to the event uh, as possible, mm-hmm. whatever that event is. Uh, for instance, my grandfather was in World War II, and he was an eyewitness to D-Day. My grandfather actually drove one of those landing barges on uh, Omaha Beach in D-Day. Right. So he was an eyewitness. He, he has firsthand knowledge of that event, June 6, 1944. Well, when he passed away several years ago, my grandmother gave me uh, his uh, his little uh, diary, his little book that the Navy gave him that he wrote in. And um, really, it wasn't a diary. It was actually a, called a Navy Blue Jackets manual. And he wrote down a lot of historical dates and what he was doing on those dates. So then uh, and then within the book itself, there were black and white photographs uh, of him in Normandy and in England as they were preparing for the D-Day invasion. So now I've got historical documents. So my grandfather was the eyewitness. He was an early eyewitness. And uh, and then the third thing is archaeology. You have you can actually go to Normandy today to the to the coast of Normandy uh, across the English Channel, and you can actually see the uh, concrete positions of the German uh, machine gun machine gunners as well as other uh, types of military equipment that's still uh, you know buried in the sand and then on top of the banks you actually have the um, you have the the dead soldiers there are thousands of dead soldiers that uh, are all over the bank so so you got the three things working together you have eyewitnesses and then you have multiple attestations and not only did my grandfather write about Normandy but there were hundreds perhaps thousands of other men uh, both American and allied and also in, in the, uh, the German position they they also wrote about the uh, invasion as well mm-hmm. so you have multiple attestation you have early testimony and you have archaeological events. So all those, th- all three things together, sort of argue for a very strong case that Normandy happened. Now that's a pretty, cl- you know, even though uh, you know a lot of our World War II veterans are pretty much passed on, there may be just a few here and there. There's going to come a time in which there will be no eyewitnesses of World War II, and the only thing we're going to have left are these three primary sources. You've got the eyewitnesses; they're all now dead. We can't interview those, but now we've got the historical records and the archaeological evidence. And that's what we have when we have the Bible. We have a document that was purportedly written by eyewitnesses, uh, but now the only thing we have access to as historians or as scholars is we have the historical record of the text itself, and we have the archaeology. And that's, what again, what archaeology can do. Archaeology can uh, serve as a, you know, can see whether or not this text is actually historically accurate. And important. The, that's the, that's an important thing. That's not the only thing it can do, but it's certainly one of the things it can do. And then the second, third thing is again illumination and clarification of the text, because one of the things we want to get at um, as modern readers of the Bible is we want to understand what did the text what did the text mean to the original audience? Because before we understand what it, how it means to us, we have to understand the original historical and cultural context. Mm-hmm. And archaeology, and archaeology will certainly help us to get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, I've got an uncle. He passed away about a year or two or so ago, and he's actually got some old newspapers from World War Two. 
but I've got to look through from time to time, and they're quite fascinating to see as well. Oh, yeah. I would, and if they're original, then I would consider they that a, a – uh, yeah, they, that would be a primary source for World War II, mm-hmm. um, in addition to the other uh, writings as well. Now, when, I, uh, when I'm on the unit and I see someone share something archaeological and such – I always have a caution. I don't care if it's an atheist throwing out something I think disproves the Bible or a Christian throwing out something I think proves the Bible. It's If it's a new discovery and it's running off the press, I always tell them, guys, I don't care what side you're on, wait a couple of years. Let the yeah. leading scholars look at this and examine it because sensational claims are usually just that, sensational, and they're very much a problem. Yes, that is absolutely true. And you see a lot, and unfortunately, Nick, as you know, um, on the Internet, I mean, with the, with the thing, with the, you know, the false news, it's really hard to verify a lot of the things that you see on the Internet. And you're absolutely correct. I mean, time certainly will bear out the truth. And if there is a theory out there, then, uh, then truth will certainly bear it out. And that, that has certainly been the case with archaeology. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about what we're talking about today, the Old Testament. And we're really going back in time, and of course, the further back we go, the harder it is to find things. That's just the nature of a beast and such. But yeah. there's a lot of people who are very, very skeptical about the Exodus, for instance. Like, this is the defining moment in Israel's history, and you have the most powerful empire in the world at the time, Egypt. And they have several plagues strike them. And this large force leaves suddenly, passes through the Red Sea, wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, goes and conquers another land and takes it over, and there's no evidence whatsoever that this happened. (laughs) Yes, that is the claim. Mm -hmm. That's certainly been the claim for at least over 100 years since since Wellhausen and, uh, you know, higher critical scholarship of the Old Testament. Uh, has come out, uh, but but there is evidence uh, that the exodus did happen, and, and it's only really been in the past, I would say, a couple of decades or so that this evidence is really coming to sharper focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is quite remarkable. Uh, in, in what I, you know, I was really pleased a couple of years ago. Um, the documentary film came out, "The Exodus Revealed." I don't know if you've seen that or not, Nick. Did you watch that? I haven't. I have heard of patterns of evidence, but I haven't got to see that either. Oh, no, patterns of evidence, that's it. Yeah, Exodus Reveal was one that was put out a few years ago, and then patterns of evidence was the later one. I, I got I got my uh, documentaries confused. But, uh, but yeah, both of them are great, and the patterns of evidence is uh, really interesting because it really puts the question back on the table. Um, most archaeologists, in fact, when I was an undergraduate student in archaeology and anthropology, uh, it was it was really the whole question of the excess is really just a non-issue for a lot of my professors and mm-hmm. uh, people that I had talked to, people that I met. I've got to meet some pretty big names in archaeology um, that are pretty you know uh, pretty well known in the archaeological world, especially in the ancient Near Eastern world uh, of archaeology, uh, Israeli and American archaeologists. Um, so the question of the Exodus and the conquest is really just sort of a non – just it didn't even concern – it wasn't even on the radar screen. So uh, so I began to be interested in – you know, as a, as a Christian. My, it, what's interesting, Nick, is that my 
my interest in apologetics and my interest in historical and archaeological questions sort of grew up together. So it sort of converged at the same time. time. So when I when I the very, one of the very first things that I began to uh, evaluate study as a, as a Christian sort of engaged in my faith intellectually was the question of the Exodus. So I've studied this, this question for years, and I've tried to look at the arguments pro and con, and I want to see, well, what, is, what do evangelicals say about the Exodus? I mean, is there any evidence? And, you know, when I first started studying it, there just wasn't a lot on it at all. I didn't see a lot on it. There was a few people writing about it. I found a couple of scholars in Europe that were very uh, friendly to the historicity of the Old Testament and the patriarchs, um, Alan Millard, and um, trying to think of the other guy, I can't think of the other guy off the top of my head, but he's in the UK. I think uh, James Hoffmeyer, which is American. There was another guy too. Um, but there were a few evangelicals, of course, that that did support the historical exodus, such as uh, Dr. Merrill Unger, uh, who some some people may know who that may, may know that name. Uh, he was a Dallas Seminary professor of Old Testament, and then Dr. Eugene Merrill, uh, also at Dallas Seminary, who wrote a book called The Kingdom of Priests, A History of Old Testament Israel. And uh, I had the privilege and the honor of actually excavating alongside Dr. Merrill in Israel in 2014. It was just a great, great honor and a great treat for me to get to meet him. And uh, he's just a, truly a gentleman and a scholar, great guy, uh, Dr. Eugene Merrill. So there were a few uh, that were supporting it, but I just didn't see him. In the last few years, my, my association with uh, with ABR, uh, Associates for Biblical Research, they, they are a, kind of a nonprofit uh, biblical archaeology ministry. Ministry, and uh, they started several years ago. I want to say a little twenty something, twenty or something years ago by a guy named Dr. David Livingston, and then later uh, it was under the direction of Dr. Bryant Wood, and uh, that's where I really began to see the evidence, and a lot of the work that Dr. Wood has done has uh, really uh, piqued my interest, and so I got involved with ABR as an associate uh, archaeologist with them, and so uh, so a lot of the evidence I've seen about the exodus has really come from the work of Dr. Bryant Wood and, and uh, some of his colleagues, and now who are, who are some of my good friends. And um, one of them in particular that uh, evangelicals may know about, if you're familiar with ETS and if you've ever been to ETS meeting, and especially some of the ancient Near Eastern archaeology meetings at ETS, and uh, some people will know Dr. Douglas Petrovich. And uh, Doug is another great guy, gentleman and a scholar, and just uh, doing some truly remarkable work on the Exodus. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so we can begin at the beginning. I don't know where you want to start with, uh, Nick, but um, if you want to talk about some of the evidence for the Exodus, we can, well, we can I, just go there if you want I to. I think we could talk about also some of the things that people put forward that are usually seem to be false claims. They shouldn't do like saying, well, we found a chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea and such. And as far as I know, we haven't found anything like that, have we? No. Well, no. I mean, here's the thing. Um, I, I am familiar with that. that. That was actually on one of the videos I mentioned earlier, the excerpts revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, there are some coral formations. That There's a lot of assumptions that are built into that. Now, I'm not I'm, at this point, um, I'm going to take an agnostic stance on that question about mm-hmm. the chariot wheels. I just it, To me, it's like, even if it were true, it just... You know, there's other evidence elsewhere that I think mm-hmm. uh, has more weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, this I don't know what what it is with archaeology, especially with Christians, that we want this big sensational find, and there are some pretty remarkable things. Uh, but the chariot wheels and stuff is just a little bit of a stretch. And you know, again, it may be true. I'm not going to say it's not. 
Uh, but I'm not convinced with the evidence that I've seen so far that this is definitely what it is. It's uh, it's a big stretch of the imagination. And again, it's also an assumption about where the Exodus crossing was. There's different views. Some people yeah. say it was in the Straits of Tehran, and the other, some scholars think it was over in Nueva, which I do think there is some mm. definite value to what Nueva Beach, which is uh, in the it's. So there's two fingers in the in the uh, Red Sea. There's the Gulf of Aqaba and the Gulf of Suez. The Gulf of Suez is in the west, and the Gulf of Aqaba is to the east of the Sinai mm-hmm. Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, there's a lot of questions uh, about that, but uh, but I would stay. And if I was, a, if I were, if I, if I could give advice to Christians, uh, especially apologists who are trying to defend the historical Exodus, I would personally shy away from any sensational things like chariot wheels mm-hmm. or uh, anything like that because it just. Uh, you know, people are already skeptical of it anyway, and so I would I would go to more solid what I consider to be more solid evidence for the Exodus yep. than uh, chariot wheels and stuff like that. I I, I tell people this. I mean, Mike, my father-in-law, Michael Cohen, he even once told me something that I thought it was something remarkable about something Barterman once said, and I was like, "This is something incredible." And he told me what book it was, and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna go go to the library, get this book, and see." It, where I can find this quote. I mean, make sure that's what he said. Make sure it's understood in proper context. I went, I got the book, I read it. The, the reference was right, but I want let people know it. I'm doing this because this is my own father-in-law, who's a scholar in the field, and I'm still checking his claim out just to make sure he didn't make a mistake on something and I get get myself embarrassed with it later on. So, I mean, guys, what I tell you with these kinds of claims... Try and verify first as much as you possibly can before you share something. Because if you share something, it turns out to be false. Not only are you embarrassed, you've embarrassed Christianity as well. Yes, absolutely. That is exactly right. (laughs) That's true. I would would completely agree with that. Yeah. And also, I think sometimes, again, people expect too much, right? Why isn't there any record? of this kind of thing happening from Egypt and such and I I always tell people well geez what do you expect Pharaoh's going to go and get out his journal and say dear journal today the Israelites gods kicked butt on all of my gods and left us humiliated <laughs> and they left through the Red Sea and my entire army got buried when we followed them I'm just going to go to bed hopefully tomorrow will be better <laughs> that's exactly right mm-hmm. yeah so no, they they definitely would not do that. That's for sure. Um, I mean, if you know anything about if you, anybody's ever read anything on ancient Egypt, uh, pharaohs were considered to be the gods. They were literally gods representative on earth. Amun Ra, in particular, mm-hmm. and uh, they're definitely not going to uh, publicize their their military defeats. Mm-hmm. Um, so 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 you're not going to see it. You're not going to see it plastered on the walls of an ancient tomb in Egypt or in some temple walls or anything like that. They're only going to record. I mean, it's like today. I mean, uh, I mean, just like modern politicians. I mean, nobody's no modern politician is going to go out there and tweet out, you know, uh, their failures or their shortcomings, things, anything like that. And it is especially true of ancient Egypt. The pharaoh was considered to be a god's king, so he was not. He was not going to advertise uh, his defeats to the whole world. Mm-hmm. So. But, that being said, then, where do we go to find evidence here of this event? Great question. And so so this is where evangelicals sort of 
part ways. And there's uh, the best way to understand this, to make it simple, is that there's an early date. We look in two areas. There's an early date of the Exodus, and there's a latter date of the Exodus. And uh, the latter date is based on an understanding in the Old Testament in Exodus about the cities of Pitum and Ramses. It's like Pithom, but it's Pitum and the cities of Ramses, which uh, could be uh, what we call anachronisms. In other words, these are place names that were added later so that the modern, the, the contemporary reader would understand where these cities were. Um, so Ramses, of course, was, was uh, built somewhere during the period of Ramses II. And so Ramses II was one of the old, one of the longest reigning pharaohs in Egypt. I think he was in his 70s. In fact, it, people used, normally didn't even live that long in ancient Egypt, and this guy reigned, you know, as pharaoh in Egypt for like 50 something years. So, uh, so anyway, uh, there's that, and that is the latter date. And there are evangelicals who hold, hold to that date. And the other date is the early date. And the early date is actually based in, in the Scripture itself. At least they, they grounded in Scripture, and this is this is the view that I hold to personally. And uh, a Bible verse that I would point people to is 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, which I will read um, here if I can find it here. i got my Bible right here. Give me a second. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 6, it says, Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. That's so it's 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. So most archaeologists, most historians, even including liberal or people who are skeptical historians of the Old Testament, would agree that Solomon uh, built the temple around 966 or 967 B.C. So when you do the math of 480 years, that you, you just reverse the clock back, then you, that place the Exodus at about uh, the year 1440, 1446 B.C. So when you look at who the Pharaoh, that places the, that places the uh, Exodus somewhere in the 18th dynasty, um, either in the reign of Tutmosis III or Amenhotep II. So uh, this is so. So as you begin to look at the evidence, and you can look at the evidence but both pro and con. And let me just say this too: that the Exodus and conquest stand or fall together. So because if we're gonna if if we are going to defend the Exodus, then we also have to defend the conquest. It's not just an either or thing. I personally think that the both both of them are intimately connected together, uh, not only uh, for you know the story of Israel, but also for historically and archaeologically they stand or fall together because if we're going to give the if we're going to give the bible the benefit of the doubt and we're going to say that well we really think this happened this is not just some you know moral story that the uh, that the israelites made up when they were in when they were in babylonian captivity which by the way is what many liberal scholars would say that the Exodus is a made-up story that uh, scholars in, the, in you know babylonian captivity made up to give israel some type of uh, history uh and meaning but this is an actual event that really happened. And so what you're going to find is you're going to find evidence that's consistent with uh, with a major uh, with a major exodus from Egypt. And that's exactly what we find in the reign of Amenhotep II. Mm-hmm. Uh, so based on internal chronology, when we begin to look at his life, this is where the work of Dr. Petrovich comes in. And uh, there's an article that he wrote uh, several years ago, in tw- actually in 2013. So that was uh, – um, you know, several, what, five years ago, 
Um, in the name of the well, the article was published in a, a journal called the Journal of Ancient Egyptian Interconnections, and it's a fascinating article. Uh, Petrovich did his PhD at the University of Toronto, and his specialty was uh, Middle Egyptian hieroglyphics. So he knows how to read Egyptian hieroglyphics, and he's done some other work. And I'll tell you about another book he's written later. But this article here is uh, the name of the article is toward pinpointing the timing of the Egyptian abandonment of Avaris during the middle of the 18th dynasty. So what is Avaris and what does this mean and what does this have to do with the Exodus? Well, Avaris was actually the um, – it was a city in the Nile Delta. So the Nile, if you look at Egypt on a map and you see the Nile as it goes from north to south or south to north, in the north, it, it spreads out into a fan called the Nile Delta. And on the east of that, uh, to the right of that fan, in one of the tributaries, uh, there is a city called Avaris, A-V-A-R-I-S, Avaris or Avaris, I think it's pronounced. Mm -hmm. The other name for the site is called Tel El-Daba. And so it's in the Nile. So this city was has been excavated for years by an Austrian archaeologist by the name of Manfred B. Tack. And um, B. Tack, Dr. B. Tack has been excavating there for years. So I'll just go ahead and cut to the chase. So Avaris was the city, was the actual city where uh, Tutmos III, who was the father of Amenhotep II, and Amenhotep II, where they, where they basically had their military based. Their military was based there, uh, and they also had a, uh, a place, and they, they've discovered this archaeologically, where they actually have – where, where they made weapons and where they kept their navy because the navy would be – would kind of be protected from the Mediterranean, and they could go out into the Mediterranean from this, of course, based on the seasons. So anyway – so what uh, Petrovich does in this article is he tries to evaluate, and this is based on BTAC's excavations. The city becomes abandoned uh, sometime during the reign, either the reign of Amenhotep or of, of Tutmos the Third or Amenhotep the Second, and so uh, there's different views and opinions about the exact timing of the abandonment of the city. The one thing is for sure is that the city and the military disappears somewhere in this time. And so what he does in this article is he, he argues that the abandonment of Avaris took place in the ninth year of the reign of Amenhotep II. Now, why, why does he say that? Uh, because in that same year, uh, Amenhotep II orders the overthrow of the Egyptian gods as well as the priesthood of Amun-Ra. Now, this is significant because um, uh, in the no, let me get back back up a little bit and give a little bit of background about Tutmosis the Third and Amenhotep the Second. Tutmosis the Third was actually the co-regent along with his sort of uh, stepmom, if you will. Her name was a very famous, one of the most famous Egyptian uh, uh, ladies, pharaoh pharaohs. Actually, her name was um, uh, Hatshepsut, and. Um, According to uh, Dr. Merrill and Dr. Petrovich and others, uh, it was Hatshepsut who actually pulled Moses from the Nile. She was the daughter of, I believe it was Seti the First. I can't, off the top of my head, I, may, I think I'm right on that. But she, uh, she would have been the one who would have pulled Moses from the Nile. 
and uh, Moses III was not old enough to reign, so she sort of served as a, uh, a pharaoh. And she, you know, her she actually built a beautiful temple there, actually a mortuary temple mm-hmm. in the Valley of the Kings that you can visit. So anyway, so when he came of age, um, he was considered. He did these incredible military campaigns into uh, into Asia and into into Israel. And because Egypt needed slave labor, he would go and get slaves every year, and he would give homage to Amun-Ra. And he was just he was just an incredible military tactician, Tutmose III. So that was the father of Amenhotep II. Mm-hmm. So when Amenhotep took on the reign, um, he began to follow in his father's footsteps. He began to uh, make forays into uh, into Israel and into the Levant and into Mesopotamia to, to gain uh, slaves. But in the ninth year of his reign, uh, after the city becomes abandoned, he does no more military campaigns at all. And it's there's no real good reason in the Egyptian record as to why he does this. And then also with the fact that he orders the overthrow of the Egyptian gods, why would he do that? So what Dr. Petrovich uh, basically suggests is that there was a perfect storm of a great religious crisis during the ninth year of the reign of Amenhotep II. And he argues that – well, not in the article. He doesn't explicitly say it in the article. But uh, basically what we believe this cry, this perfect storm in the, in the reign of Amenhotep II was the exodus, mm-hmm. uh, was the plagues, because the Egyptian gods – were they were the ones who were pretty much they you know the Egyptians believed that they were in control of everything they were in control of the Nile they were in control of the weather of, of the animals and things like that in fact so so not only with this evidence from Amenhotep II but the internal evidence within the text itself uh, reveals that it was written by a person who understood Egyptian culture who understood Egyptian religion and uh, so when you see the ten plagues. Each of the plagues corresponded to an Egyptian god or gods, multiple gods. Mm-hmm. And then the 10th plague itself, the, the death of the firstborn, was really a, uh, a kind of a smack in the head, if you will, to, uh, to, the, to the divinity of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh is considered to be the god king. And so um, with the death of the firstborn, not even Pharaoh could save his own son. So, so all this argues for the authenticity of the Exodus tradition in the Old Testament. Uh, and, we, and then so so this date of 1446, this is also the date of when, in the time frame of when the abandonment of, of, of Avaris takes place. So, so we have this disappearance of Pharaoh's navy, not his navy, but his army and his chariots, and there's no more weapons being made. He does no more, uh, he does no more military forays. He pretty much stays in Egypt the rest of his life. Why would he do that? Well, because his army's gone. Uh, he, they were lost in the Red Sea. So uh, anyway, so this is a remarkable evidence from the from – the, this is exactly what you expect to find. We were talking about earlier the pharaoh wouldn't – he would not advertise this on temple walls or palace walls. But what, you, what we want, what we expect to find is evidence that is consistent with what a defeat would look like in the Egyptian record. And uh, so the timing fits, the, the Exodus fits, the date fits from First Kings, internal evidence within the text itself. And then also, this also, uh, the date of Amenhotep II, uh, there are lots of other little points of, of, uh, of, of connection. But another one is the, actu- the actual conquest. So according to Joshua, uh, the Israelites, the Bible says the Israelites uh, took 
basically three cities. Uh, they basically completely destroyed three cities. And they were supposed to, of course, God commanded them to uh, conquer the entire land, to drive out the Canaanites, and to establish themselves in the land. And, of course, you, when you read it, you read that uh, Joshua destroyed – the first city they destroyed was Jericho, the second city was Ai, and the third city was a city called Hatsor. And so we have found all three of these cities archaeologically, and, and I can talk about those in, mo- in a moment. But all three have been discovered and identified archaeologically, and there is evidence in all three cities that they were destroyed in – the uh, late, or I think it's late Bronze Age. Um, they were destroyed exactly as the text says, and they were burned to the ground and offered to God as a burnt offering. Now there is some controversy on Jericho, and uh, Jericho uh, was discovered, was identified, I believe, by William F. Albright, the father, one of the founding fathers of, of modern biblical archaeology. And uh, of course, Dr. Albright was at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, um, the, the name of the site is called Tel El Satan, and uh, it's it's positively no no one doubts that this is Jericho. In fact, it's a really fascinating site because it actually dates back the layers. It's it's it's, it's a tell. So there's two kinds of uh, there's two kinds of archaeological sites in Israel. There is something called a kerbet. It's an Arabic word which means ruin. So it sort of just sits on the top of the ground. These are just kind of piles of rocks. And the other type of archaeological uh, just, uh, artifact that's left in Israel is called a tell, T-E-L-L. And that, that's an Arabic word, which means an artificial mound or a hill. So Jericho is a tell, tell Jericho. Mm-hmm. And so if you've ever been to Israel, you can actually visit Jericho. And uh, so it was identified positively by Albright. In the 1930s, the site was excavated by... Uh, under, under the direction of an archaeologist at the University of Chicago named John Garstang. And Garstang um, excavated Jericho and did discover, in fact, of course, in, in the city there are different layers. And in, in, in this case, in Jericho, City 4 uh, is where he identified the conquest layer of Jericho. Jericho, as it sits, it was actually ancient Jericho when during the time of the conquest was actually a Canaanite double-walled fortress. So, you know, when you read the biblical account, uh, when the Israelites came up to it and they were just like overwhelmed, they were like, there's no way we can take this. And, and, and now archaeology helps us to see why, because it was a double-walled fortress. Uh, so what, what I mean by that is that so there was a, an outer wall and then there was an inner wall. So it was like a you know, like you have a, an outer chamber of a castle, then you have the inner chamber. So you have two walls, but on the, on the basis of each wall, there was something called a revetment wall or a retaining wall, or as, I think it's called a glacis, G-L-A-C-I-S. Mm-hmm. So this glacis was like 15 to 20 foot tall, and it sloped up, and it was sort of slick. You couldn't even get up. You couldn't climb up to get up to it. But then once you got to the top of that 15-foot glacis, then you had another 15 or 20 feet of wall that was very thick. And another thing that Garstang found when he excavated Jericho was he found uh, actual dwelling places along the wall. Now, again, when you come and you read the biblical account of the conquest of Jericho, we know that Joshua uh, got help from uh, the prostitute who lived on the wall. Mm -hmm. And archaeology bears this out, that there were dwelling places that had windows that were facing outward. So, again, as in It says. Um, so, so what from, we can you start again from from a, and again as you cut out for a little bit. Okay, I apologize. 
So, um, so again, this is this is another example of how archaeology, uh, in a small way, affirms what these dwelling places um, that were Dad, outside the city walls. Dad, yeah, small way affirms yeah. what again? You can't cut out yet again. Oh, I'm sorry. It affirms uh, what the what the Bible st- says in the book of Joshua. Mm-hmm. That, that the Israelites were living, or that, excuse me, that the Canaanites were living along the wall, and of course Joshua received help from uh, the prostitute. Um, so, so when Garstang discovered um, the uh, destruction layer, there was actually a breach in two sections of the wall, the lower wall and the upper wall. So the inner wall was, was leveled, one part of it, and then the other part was leveled in the lower wall, so the outer wall. And what, what happened was is that some type of event caused the wall to breach and the, the bricks literally fell down underneath the revetment wall and formed a ramp right up into the city and you act in fact you can go there today and you can actually climb on the it's basically like a brick ramp that they basically formed up in the city now what's interesting nick is that the bible says that in the hebrew the wall fell beneath themselves that's literally what it says in hebrew they the walls fell beneath themselves so now when we look at the archaeology, we can see how the walls would have fallen underneath themselves, and that's exactly what we find. The other details that we find uh, that Garstang discovered at Jericho was the city was burned inside. Uh, nothing was taken. Uh, the Normally, when an invading army would go into a city and they would uh, you know, fight against an ancient city, you would go in there and you would take everything in the city. And the Bible says that, um, that the conquest happened uh, of Jericho during the fall, during the harvest time of the year. And uh, in the archaeological ruins, we find jars and amphora full of grain that were burned. And you can actually see the burned grain in your hand. So it's pretty remarkable that all these little details that we find in the archaeological record. So there's a little bit of a problem, though, because about 20 years later, after Garstang excavated, in the 1950s, a British archaeologist came back to the city. Her name was Kathleen Kenyon. And Kenyon was trained by a, another uh, British archaeologist named uh, Sir Mortimer Wheeler. And Wheeler had a new way of excavating in which he paid very careful attention to the stratigraphy of the land or of the ground. And so Kenyon uh, was employing some of those new archaeological methods to Jericho. And she didn't, you know, for the most part, it was a pretty pioneering dig. But there was a glaring omission, and so let me, let me back up. Though what 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 Kenyon did though was she redated uh, City Four uh, to many years later. I want to say 100 to 200 years later. So essentially, what she did with a stroke of her pen um, is that she uh, Kenyon eliminated the conquest. So again, so if you're if you're a Christian or if you're a Jew and you believe the biblical account of the conquest, then uh, if you hold to Kenyon's view, then essentially there is there's nowhere else in the in the archaeological record of Jericho where the conquest can be. I mean, there's just because the city was either unoccupied or it was unconquered in in many of its other phases. Mm-hmm. So it's only in City Four that we find it. So it's not a so, you know, is this a matter of uh, Christians trying to make the, you know, data fit, you know, so we can actually believe the Bible? Not necessarily, no, because uh, 
John, uh, not excuse me, um, Dr. Bryant Wood, um, who uh, is again, I mentioned him earlier. He's with ABR Associates Biblical Research. He uh, is an expert in pottery, and uh, what he did was he went back over Kenyon's original reports, and uh, we mentioned pottery earlier and how important pottery is for dating an archaeological site. So, uh, so just like um, I know that you live in Atlanta, Georgia, Nick, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Coke Museum. Have you been to the Coke Museum there? Nope, not yet. It's actually, it's actually pretty cool. So if you go to the Coke Museum, if anybody's ever been, but you know the Coke bottle changes, the styles of Coke bottles change over time. So when you mm-hmm. look at the very first Coke bottle, I think it was made in the 1890s or whenever it was. You know, it was a very old Coke bottle, and as as time goes forward, the Coke bottle styles change over time, and uh, so. In the same way, pottery styles change over time, and so archaeologists can use, can look at those stylistic changes, and they can, and now it's, a, it's called the ceramic typology. And uh, the first people to pioneer this were uh, William, well, actually William Matthews Flinders Petrie, British archaeologist and Egyptologist, and then uh, the ones who really made it, uh, you know, more tight and more uh, accurate scientifically were William F. Albright and G. E. Wright, George Ernest Wright who were the fathers of, of modern biblical archaeology. So so now we have this pottery, and so pottery is very, very important in uh, archaeological dating. So the reason why I spent all that time explaining that is because that helps us understand what's going on at Jericho. So let's go back to Jericho. So why did Kathleen Kenyon redate Jericho? Because of a certain kind of pottery that she did not find there. So the pottery in question is a pottery called... Uh, Cypriotic bichrome pottery. It's called Cypriot mm-hmm. from Cyprus bichrome two-color pottery. So, what the significance of this pottery is that we know that this kind of pottery, this style of pottery, was only made during a particular time frame. But later, there in Canaan, the local Canaanite population was making it locally. Mm-hmm. So, because she didn't find imported Cypriot pottery, she redates the site to 200 years later. But what she failed to record in her excavation report were the millions of locally made Cypriot pottery. Mm-hmm. Now, when archaeologists find locally made Cypriot pottery, as they have done at Hatzor and other places in Israel, then it will date the site to 14, 1406 or 1401 BC. So we're talking about uh, a, an omission of recording a pottery that would redate the site. So that's this is exactly what Bryant Wood says in some of his articles, uh, arguing against Kathleen Kenyon's understanding of Jericho. So I hold to the that Dr. Bryant Wood is actually correct uh, with this Cypriot pottery. The location of this locally made Cypriot pottery very, argues very strongly that John Garstang was correct. And that Jericho indeed was destroyed. City 4 was destroyed exactly as the Bible says it was. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the first one. The second one, is City is I, uh, which we have located, uh, not me personally, but our team, uh, in Israel and nine miles north of Jerusalem. Now, for years, uh, scholars were divided, even Christian scholars were divided over the location of I. There were actually two or three possible locations. But as time went on, uh, archaeology did not bear those sites out to be the actual sites. Uh, so there's only one of the locations, Dr. Bright Wood and uh, one of his colleagues, uh, Gary Byers, scouted out this site in Israel near the modern-day city of Ramallah, which is the home city of Yasser Arafat, who is the former 
uh, leader of the PLO. It's literally on a ridge uh, near an Arab village called Deir Dubon, and the site is called Kerbet el Makater. And uh, so Dr. Wood uh, did the, the initial survey, and the team excavated there for almost 20 years, and uh, I took part in the 2014 excavation. But uh, it is exactly there, exactly as the Bible says. It fits the geographical descriptions. There's an article that Dr. Wood has in which he lists, I think, 12 or 14 geographical uh, parameters for the location of the, the biblical city of Ai. In other words, when you look at the Bible and you look at where it had to be, it had to be it had to be a fortress, a Canaanite fortress that was facing north. It had to be near Bethel, and it had to have a valley in the south. There were other types of geographical descriptions, but but uh, long story short. Uh, all of those descriptions, all of those criteria were fulfilled by Kerbet el Makater. And not only that, we found the Canaanite city. We found the gate pointing north. When you read the biblical account of the conquest of Ai, it says that uh, Joshua and the armies of Israel uh, coaxed. It was sort of like a classic ambush. They uh, they basically got the uh, uh, people to come out to open the gate. And uh, Joshua situated himself on a hill just outside of the gate, uh, several, you know, quite quite a bit away. But it, it was on a hill where they could actually see it. Mm-hmm. And you can stand in the gate at I at Kerbet el Makater, and you can look at where Joshua stood. You can see where he hid his army uh, in the back. It was a classic ambush. This the the you know, the king of I opened up the gate. The armies marched out. They came out of the city, charging after Joshua. And then his uh, other side of his army came up from behind and came into the city and burned it, and that's exactly what we find in the archaeological record. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that city's been discovered, and then Hotsor has been discovered and burned exactly as the Bible says it was. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, again, we talked about – we're kind of coming full circle. We were talking about the Exodus, and my point is, is that this evidence for the early date, in my view, really fits the archaeological evidence, not only in Egypt, but also in Israel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if a lot of Christians, some Christians want to hold on to the latter date, then they also have to come up with the conquest. Are, are they going to erase the conquest? Are they going to say, well, there wasn't a conquest? But then furthermore, they have problems with the Pharaoh of the Exodus himself, because if they say that the Pharaoh of the Exodus is Ramses II, mm. then where in the world is the evidence in, in Ramses' life to show that there was uh, a, a, you know, an Exodus? Mm-hmm. There's just there's just not. I just don't see it in the life of Ramses II. All the evidence seems to point to uh, Amenhotep II. Well, I like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Ted Wright here talking about archaeology with an emphasis on the Exodus and the conquest. If you're here next week, I have a project's issue dealing with the problem of evil from a very personal perspective. And the, the book we're talking about, it's a very, I, I hesitate to say it's a very good book because it is, but it's not about something that's good. It's It's a tragedy. In fact, but it's so much very eye-opening reader. But we have Douglas Grotice on here next week, talking about his book, Walking Through Twilight. And if you don't know, it's about his beloved wife, who has been his partner in everything for so long. Becky, I believe was her name. And how she's this smart, intelligent woman, and then she's got this condition now that's sapping her mentor functioning and such, kind of like Alzheimer's in some ways, and is eventually going to cure her. And Doug Grotice has written a very powerful memoir on what it's like going through this. And he'll be with us next week 
to talk about that. But now, Ted, getting back to what you said, though, some of it came to me at the start here when you start talking about the uh, names in the text and such in Exodus. You said some of them were anachronistic, you know, to keep up so that readers could know what you're talking about. But we know in New Testament history, usually, that if you see something that's an anachronism, where that means the account is an error. So why is the anachronism okay here? Well, it's not that it's okay. It's just you have to look at the original audience. Um, you know, they're 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 writing to the Israelites, and they're writing to a particular audience. So we a lot of times we will, like you were saying earlier, you know, we we put too much on the text. Um, we want the text to fit what our modern understanding of how it should function. And you got to remember, this was for a specific nation. I mean, it was a, a very, uh, you know, a nation that were they were in basically in pilgrimage. Pretty much most of their life, they were uh, heading to Israel and they were trying to enter, enter the Promised Land, or they were kicked out of the Promised Land. So, uh, so again, it, it's just I don't consider it an error. I consider it sort of a uh, an editorial gloss so that the uh, readers would understand uh, these cities that they were, were referring to. Yeah, I think it's kind of like if we were talking about American history, for instance, we could talk about something that happened in New York even though it could have been, at the time, New Amsterdam. But we use that name because where everyone knows what New York is, but most people might not know what New Amsterdam is. Absolutely. As long as the referent is the same, um, I don't have a problem with the name changing because the, because the, the overwhelming evidence uh, is, is you know, to the contrary. For What, what, I, what I find ironic, uh, Nick, about this, about the specs of the exit account and, and the identification of the Exodus pharaoh, um, his his uh, so the, the biblical account in Exodus just uses the generic name the Hebrew name Pharaoh of course mm-hmm. king uh, the Egyptian Pharaoh but it doesn't mention his the, the the Egyptians have a name called the pronomen but the Egyptian pharaohs had multiple names and they were mm-hmm. you know they were in honor of the different gods and what's what's interesting and ironic is that throughout the Exodus narrative Pharaoh's name his pronomen or any of his names that he would have been given is not named one time. Uh, which I think is actually on purpose, mm-hmm. um, because the focus is not on Pharaoh. The focus is on God. Because you think about the Egyptians. They, I mean, you think about the Israelites. They were they were in Egypt, Egyptian bondage for four hundred years. So uh, this was a, this was a letter to them. This was a text written to them as a new nation, uh, as to how they were, you know, who how were they going to act, and who was the most important person. Because you know, for years, for you know, for four hundred years, the most important person was the Pharaoh, and not that God was not important. It's just that he was really, he was really, literally God's representative on earth. Um, a really good book on the subject that really brings out a lot of the polemic against uh, between God or between the Hebrew God Yahweh and the Egyptian gods is a, a book by John Currid. He actually has two books on the subject now. Uh, Dr. Currid. Uh, one is called Ancient Egypt in the Old Testament, which I've recommended for years. It's a really, really excellent book. And then he's got a follow-up on it called Against the Gods, and uh, it's written by John Currid, C-U-R-R-I-D. And uh, he brings up a lot of this polemical uh, meta- language that you find in the uh, uh, in the text itself. This, t- again, argues for the internal uh, understanding of the text in, in, in Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin when Steve, right before Stephen was being stoned uh, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin and to the Jews he said that Moses was a man trained 
in all the ways of the Egyptian and was a mighty in word and deed. So Moses was a very, very, he was very intimately connected, understood Egyptian culture. And if or since that is the case, what we, what we expect to find in the Exodus narratives is you expect to find little clues. I don't, I don't know. I haven't really looked into it that much, but I don't know if there would be undesigned coincidences or not. I don't know if these would qualify, but there are certainly things in the Old Testament text in, in the Exodus narratives that only someone who would have understood Egyptian culture would have gotten. And I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples. I was about to ask um, them. Yes, I, I got two in mind. One is the uh, the, the the motif of the serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as a modern reader, you can read the you can read the Exodus account. You can watch the movie. You can watch the Prince of Egypt, and you know it's a pretty good rendition of it. You can watch all that, and you can get the you can come away with the main you know, lesson or main moral of the story. But you, you remember, go back to the original audience. Who were the original? Who was this written to? The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, was written to the Israelites. Yeah. And uh, they were a people that had been in Egypt for 400 years. So this Egyptian mindset would have still been very fresh in their minds. They would have understood the references. So when you read that Moses... Um, goes before Pharaoh, and he he casts down his staff, and it becomes a serpent in the presence of the Pharaoh. You know that's we think, oh, that's pretty cool. That's that's a pretty neat trick. I mean, God can do miracles. That's great. But this has tremendous significance if you're an Egyptian because the serpent, in particular, the cobra was literally the symbol of ancient Egypt. It was like their, it was like the American eagle is for America. Mm-hmm. It was the symbol of Egypt. It was a symbol. In fact, one of the very first things that in 1924, when Howard Carter uh, discovered the tomb of King Tut, when, as soon as he placed his candle in the, in the inner chamber of King Tut's tomb, one of the very first things he saw was a golden serpent staring him in the face. Mm-hmm. So the serpent, the serpent, you can look at Egypt. In fact, you can just think, people could just imagine a, a, a picture of King Tut or any Egyptian pharaoh. One of the first things you're going to see on his crown is what? A snake. The, the snake is going to be on his crown because the serpent represents Egypt. The serpent represents, um, of course, Egypt was divided into upper and lower Egypt, and the serpent represented lower Egypt, um, or upper Egypt rather, which is in the desert, and then the lower Egypt. Which is in the north represents is represented excuse me represented by the the Nile Delta, and uh, Upper Egypt is represented by the vulture, but but the serpent motif is throughout the Exodus narrative, and not only that is also throughout the book of uh, the Pentateuch as well. Mm-hmm. You see the serpent you see the serpent in the Garden of Eden promising a life but giving death. Um, you see the serpent motif come up again in Numbers chapter twenty one and twenty two when the Israelites are finally out of Egypt. They finally leave Egypt, and they begin to complain to Moses and to God that they want to go back. to. They say, at least in Egypt, we have fish, we have melons and cucumbers and garlics and leeks and onions, and they cried out to God, they want to go back to Egypt, which, if you think about it, Egypt represented slavery, it represented death, it didn't represent enlightenment, it represented death. So they cried out to God that they wanted Egypt. So what does God do? He gives them Egypt in the form of a serpent. And the serpents in the desert, the serpents begin to bite the Israelites, on, and they begin to, they begin to die. Mm-hmm. And so then Moses goes to God, and God says, here's what, I, here's what you do, Moses. I want you to get a make a bronze or a brazen serpent and fasten it on a pole, 
those who look to the serpent will live. Now, it seems kind of odd. Like, why would God tell Israel to do that? I mean, there's a lot of things God told Israel to do mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. You're kind of like, well, what's going on here? But but as you fast forward the clock, and of course, Jesus is this, is this is the theme of the entire Bible. He's the theme of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But Jesus is foreshadowed in type and prophecy. And in this case, in Numbers 21 and 22, Jesus is foreshadowed in the serpent. And in, in John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus at night, and Nicodemus says, how can a man be born result? And Jesus marveled at Nicodemus because he was a man of, of the law. He was a man of the Torah. He should have understood what the symbolism was. He said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man shall be lifted up. And I think at that point, Nicodemus got it. He, he, the, 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 the dots were connected for Nicodemus because he understood that Jesus was the snake. He literally, Jesus became sin for us. So, so here again is a picture of internal evidence uh, of the serpent, uh, how that illustrates that this is a very uh, powerful metaphor and a very powerful image, and a, a powerful symbol and a reality for most Egyptians. Uh, but for the Israelites, it became an object lesson for faith in God. The very thing that was causing them death, if they trusted God, would then become the object of their life. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Jesus did for the nation of Israel. The very thing that was their death, then by faith, would then become their life if they trusted and believed in God. So it's a very powerful picture of Jesus. And the second example, and there are many others, but the t- second example is another powerful example is in the plague narratives, when you see uh, uh, Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go, and, you know, does it ten times. In each of the ten plagues, the Bible says that that Pharaoh, it sort of alternates back and forth. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart, or, or, you know, God hardened his heart. And it really wasn't that God was hardening his heart directly. uh, It was essentially saying that God's actions were causing Pharaoh just to continue to get hard, more hard in his heart. Mm-hmm. The indication from the text is that the, the, the hardening of the heart was a heaviness, a, a weight, that the heart was getting heavier and more uh, weighty. Mm-hmm. Now, this, and it, when you read the text in the English, you sort of, you know what's going on. You know that Pharaoh is being stubborn. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's not, you know, he's being hard-hearted, being hard-headed. He's got his own will. I'm not going to obey God. The issue of pride is is there, but there's something else going on as well. And it, when you understand the Egyptian coloring of it, it really begins to bring out a very powerful picture. Mm-hmm. And so, for years, archaeologists uh, did not know, or not archaeologists, but scholars didn't know what the hieroglyphics were saying until uh, eighteen, I think it was eighteen twenty-three, when um, uh, a French scholar by the name of Jean-François Champollion. Uh, deciphered the Rosetta Stone that was found in, in 1799 by uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, military guys. It's, uh, one of his officers, uh, actually, uh, as they were actually digging a fortress wall, they uncovered this huge uh, stone tablet that contained three languages. And, of course, it was hieroglyphics was one of the languages. Uh, in uh, 1815, Napoleon was defeated by the British by Wellington, and uh, so the Rosetta Stone then went to went to Brit- Great Britain, and it was in the British Museum for years. So 
the French uh, wanted to decipher it, and there was one young man who was a, uh, a prodigy in languages, and his name was Jean-Francois Champollion. Of course, there was a British had had their guy. I think it was his name was Thomas Young, if I remember correctly. And Young was uh, also so there was a race as to who was going to decipher the Rosetta Stone, and uh, Champollion was the one who did it, succeeded in deciphering Rosetta Stone. This was huge because it unlocked. Um, hieroglyphics and it underlocked Egyptian culture, Egyptian history. It gave us illumination and insight into the world of the Old Testament, into the world of the uh, Exodus itself. And one of the one of the things that we learn as we deciphered different texts and, and artifacts and papyri and things like that is something called the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, what we discover is something called the uh, the trial of the heart. And uh, this is an ordeal that took place when the pharaoh died in the afterlife. The pharaoh's heart would be weighed in the scale balances against something called ma'at. It's an Egyptian concept, ma'at. You can look it up. It's it's easy to spell, M-A-A-T. You can look it up. I think even Wikipedia even has it on there. But the the concept of ma'at in Egyptian culture is very important. Essentially, ma'at symbolized law, order, righteousness, truth, and it's symbolized in Egyptian hieroglyphics by the feather. So the feather is light. It's, it's light. It's easy. You know, it's, uh, it's airy. But the heart is going to be weighed, and there is actually many papyri actually contain this picture. People have seen this, in which the heart is taken out of Pharaoh and is weighed against the feather of truth. If the heart is heavy, if the heart is hard, then the heart would be condemned, and the Pharaoh himself would be condemned in the afterlife. So this, to me, this this whole episode of the Pharaoh hardening his heart is another indication of the internal, uh, you know, uh, eyewitness understanding of this culture. And the Israelites would have understood this as well. So I think this is another great insight into the into the text that helps us understand that this was written by someone who uh, who understood Egyptian culture, and uh, the, the warning uh, to Pharaoh was very clear. Uh, don't harden your heart. Uh, do not harden your heart, because you know that even according to your own gods and even according to your own standards of religion, uh, what you're doing by not letting us go is not right. Mm-hmm. So this provides some amazing illumination. Uh, for the the text, and this again, we said we said archaeology can illuminate, can clarify, and this is an instance here uh, with e- Egyptology in which archaeology illuminates the text in a way that we can see uh, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I can mind it when at this point you're listening to Deeper Waters podcast. We got Ted right here. We're talking about the Exodus and the conquest in ancient Israel's history. And I can mind everyone that everything we do here. It's supported by people like you, average, ordinary listeners who may not have the time to go out and do all the reading and research and interviewing, but like to partake of the fruits of labor. And if so, we ask that uh, if this is being beneficial to you, that you give back to help support us. Now, if you want to do that, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a link there, and... It's on the side, it says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, where you go there, and you click on it, and it takes you to Risen Jesus. 
You're still going to the right place, okay? That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You go, and you make you make your donation, and you get in touch with me or Allie or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Diva Waters. If they will make sure we get your donation, it will be tax deductible. You can also go on Amazon and buy some e-books that I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, other such things as well. And another thing you can do if you want to support us is, um, guys, I, I hope you would have learned this, especially if you're married or if you want to get married someday, and that's that women like jewelry, okay? And it, I mean, Ted, are you married? Uh, no. Okay. Okay, so you might not not, <clears throat> so you might not have direct experience with this, but if you're like Ted and you're a singer, <laughs> keep in mind... Mother's Day is coming up also, and you want to please that woman in your life. So, if uh, you want to please a lady in your life, go and buy jewelry from our jewelry store. And whatever you purchase for us, or ever for yourself, whatever you purchase, 25% of the price will go to Deeper Waters. And so, guys, if you're buying this for your girlfriend... Or your wife, especially if for your wife, remember my advice. You can buy something now to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And <laughs> trust me, Ted, I've been there, okay? now. Surely not, Nick. Not you, man. Oh, oh yeah, even me. Uh, I can't wear jewelry a lot. Sometimes I have to buy other things. But, um... If you can't do any of these also, please consider going on iTunes and leaving a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I, I love to see what you guys think, what you're saying. love to read the written reviews are behind. They're, they're just awesome. And, and I, I'm so pleased that consistently this podcast seems to have an excellent rating in iTunes. That's awesome that you guys treat it this way. Um, Ted, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, sure, yes. Um, well, we have got Epic Archaeology, and uh, people can go to the website, uh, epicarchaeology.org, and uh, the, across the top of the screen, there's a menu, and there's a one on the right that says Donate. And uh, one of the things that we're going to be uh, kicking off this summer, Nick, is a new podcast uh, dedicated to archaeology news from around the world uh, as it relates to the Bible, and not just the Bible, but also other fascinating archaeology news that people might want to hear. And the name of the podcast is going to be The Monocle and Spade. So if you remember the old, old-timey old archaeologists where they had the little monocle, the little eyeglass, mm -hmm. <laughs> we've got a really cool mascot. Little uh, I'm calling Earl the Hipster Archaeologist, and so you're, he's going to be launching. But we're going to try, try to be launching that this summer, and so uh, folks want to help us out with that. And we're also going to have some other things uh, that we're going to be do doing. But if you're interested in, in uh, supporting uh, the, the research work and of uh, Epic Archaeology, you can go to epicarchaeology.org and uh, go to the right, click donate, and uh, all your tax, uh, all your uh, donations are tax deductible. Uh, Arche Epic Archaeology is part of the Defenders Media Alliance, and um, we are a nonprofit uh, organization, so everything is tax deductible and very much appreciated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think something important to say about the uh, Pharaoh not being named. 
such and this is something that a lot of people don't understand so much about the ancient world is that not naming someone was really a way oftentimes of dishonoring them. I just got done reading a few days ago the book yeah. of Ruth. I'm going through the Old Testament again. I mean, that's how I do on my Bible reading. And in Ruth, there's really only one figure who's not named, and that's the person who refuses to do his kinsman redeemer rights and marry Ruth and provide a family and said his family shall be nameless. We don't even know who this guy is because of this. Yes. And this, you, that is exactly right, Nick. And this is especially true in ancient Egypt because the Pharaoh's name would be remembered for a couple of things. Um, the, uh, his inscriptions, his inscriptional evidence uh, there on, on the monuments um, would be a memorial for his name. Uh, but if his name was erased, then he would not be remembered. He, he, in other words, his eternal soul, his ba, B-A, uh, was connected to his name. So you're absolutely right. The fact that the biblical writer in Exodus does not mention the name of the Pharaoh is sort of is sort of a slam. It's sort of saying that uh, you're you're not quite as important. Of course, the focus was on God Himself. God's God Pharaoh. God would be known. In fact, He says throughout the text, God would say, "I will be known to Pharaoh and to Egypt." So the point was not that Pharaoh was known. The point is that God, the Lord God, would be known not only among the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians as well. Now, something else we have to talk about is that the Israelites, according to the account, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so many times people say, where? Where are the bodies? Where are the remains? How come we don't see anything from this to indicate they were there? Right. It's, I mean, it's really the argument from silence is because an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Um, there's a lot of um, research work that's been done on this. Um, and uh, my research I've done, one of the, one of the locations, um, in the, this has happened in the 4th century. Now, I just actually got through writing a, an article, and my latest article is on, uh, is on Byzantine, uh, you know, Christianity and how the earliest Christians began to see the land as holy. Um, but uh, the earliest Christian people that were in the Holy Land to identify holy sites were uh, Eusebius, the church father Eusebius of Caesarea, who was also who was also uh, a, a colleague, I guess a friend, if you will, of uh, Constantine the Great and his mother Helena. And Helena, when Helena went to the Holy Land, uh, she primarily was concerned with the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and some of the holy sites in Jerusalem and also in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. But they also went out in the desert and there were already monks living out into the Sinai Peninsula, and uh, there, this is where monasticism actually began. It began in Egypt with Pacomius or St. Anthony, and these hermits, these Egyptian Christian hermits, would live out in the desert. Now, they were not archaeologists, but they came to this place in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, and uh, – I don't know exactly. I haven't traced down the exact reference, but somehow or another, they began to identify this particular mountain with Mount Sinai. And so when Helena came with her retinue, probably Eusebius, I don't know if he was with her at this time, but uh, she she asked these monks or these uh, ascetics to show her 
where Mount Sinai was, then they built a monastery there. In fact, it's one of the oldest monasteries in the world. It's called the Monastery of St. Catherine's in the Sinai Peninsula. And they, in fact, some of the oldest manuscript, biblical manuscripts mm-hmm. have been discovered in the Monastery of St. Catherine's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's not a lot of historic, there's not a lot of archaeological evidence that this was the mountain of uh, of, of Sinai. Uh, so, again, the, the uh, people ask, well, why, why is there not evidence of the Israelites' bodies in the desert? Well, because they didn't really establish a permanent presence in the desert. They were wandering. And also we have to take into account the fact that, uh, you know, uh, they were they were semi nomadic, so they probably they probably lived in tents. And to, to this day, there are Bedouins that still live out there today. The, you know, of course, the, the numbers of the Bedouin are changing, and they're actually d- diminishing uh, in the in the Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. So, um, one thing that we could do, and I don't know if there's uh, been some more recent research on this, is that again, I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast the use of satellite imagery for detecting. Uh, changes in vegetation or ancient trade routes. So it's very possible that, uh, you know, archaeologists working with uh, satellite imagery and imaging could discover a possible route uh, of the Israelites and a possible place of the Israelites in the, in the desert. Mm-hmm. So so I, 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 don't, I don't have an ad, a perfect answer for that. I don't know why they haven't found evidence for that yet. But, um, uh, again, evidence for absence is not ev- uh, absence of evidence. One or vice versa, rather. One of the things I've pointed to on this kind of thing is looking at the people known as Pacifians, and they wandered for several, several years, much longer, and there were probably just as many people there with them, and the only things we found are the tombs of their kings. In other words, the things they built to last. Other things yes. we haven't found... Right. That's exactly right. Now, that's uh-huh. yeah. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you, no um, there is a there is an interesting site, uh, and again, I'm not gonna. I won't plant my flag, but I do have very strong leanings to this, and and I know that there's this is a controversial thing even among among uh, uh, evangelical archaeologists, is that uh, it seems to me that um, that Mount Sinai may possibly be in Saudi Arabia. And why do I say that? Because uh, we know that Israel or that Moses spoke to God in Midian when he was tending his father-in-law's flocks, Jethro. He was in the, the land called Midian or Midian, and Midian was his, had always been on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, there is a there is a place uh, that some uh, controversial figures have been to, and. Uh, n- it's a couple of names, and I don't agree with everything they say, but I do think there may be something to this, and it's uh, Ron Wyatt and uh, Bob Cornuk. And I don't know if you're familiar with either of those guys. And I actually have met Bob. Uh, he's good friends with uh, Frank Turek, actually. And Bob's a great guy. And Bob actually went, went to, I think it was in the early 90s, uh, snuck into Saudi Arabia and to this mountain called Jabal al-Laws. And uh, it does contain some pretty remarkable things, and they have been confirmed by other people, not just by Bob Cornuke, but or by Ron Wyatt, but by other people as well. And one of the things they found at the base of this mountain in Saudi Arabia is uh, 12 pillars. There is an altar site, uh, a definite altar site. Uh, there's barbed wire fence around it. It looks like a giant altar uh, that contains petroglyphs of uh, – 
of the Egyptian bulls called Apis bulls, and we know that we know that these types of bulls were actually uh, utilized in ancient Egypt during the 18th dynasty, and they were revered. And of course, when you read the biblical account, uh, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, they uh, they had made an altar to the golden calf. Uh, very interesting stuff. Very very fascinating stuff. Uh, I've heard, now, again, this is a hearsay story. I don't have the direct line of evidence for this. This is just a story that I heard. And again, we can't go on story. So right now we're just talking in, in the realm of possibility. We don't, don't have any hard evidence for this. But one of the stories I did hear from a, from a friend is that uh, this, again, confirms some of the things we're saying here. Uh, the royal Saudi family from the House of Saud, Saudi Arabia, uh, they, of course, uh, have a lot of money. And they hired this uh, doctor in Korea, South Korean doctor, to, uh, to he was a specialist in some type of medical treatment. And one of their family members needed him, so they hired him to come. What they didn't realize is that this Korean doctor was a very devout Christian and was very interested in, in biblical archaeology and history. And he had known about the site. And so he didn't he didn't let this known to the Saudi family, but he did he did let them know that he was interested in history and things like that. So anyway, he actually got to go and to this site and to visit the place where the altar was. And then later he was in a museum. And I want to say it was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, right near where the altar was. Now, this he found this out later. Now, he couldn't read Arabic. So when he was in the museum, they came to this place. And his guide was talking talking through some of the things that were discovered. And there was a lot of gold Egyptian artifacts that were on display on this particular uh, museum display. And the interpreter told him that these were discovered at the base of that altar that they visited, which is very interesting. You, you know, uh, it's, again, this is, this is pretty amazing. If this is true, this is pretty remarkable that these gold artifacts that were Egyptian uh, styled ornamentation, jewels, things like that. Of course, you know, the, if you know the biblical account, the Israelites left Egypt with the treasures of, of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And they melted them down, and they became a golden calf. So some of these artifacts uh, were found sprinkled around the base of this uh, of this great altar site that contains uh, these etchings of, of uh, Egyptian bulls on the outside of them. So, mm-hmm. um, so again, that's a uh, that's a, a place of great interest to me, uh, archaeologically and historically. Um, I think there may be very well be something to it. And uh, we just can't say with absolute certainty right now because archaeologists have not have not excavated there. Um, there are some ish, possible issues with it, uh, the location of Kadesh Barnea and other things. But I don't think it necessarily rules it out that this, that, that, again, Mount Sinai very well could be in Saudi Arabia and not in a Sinai Peninsula. As, mm-hmm. as, uh, I, I definitely do think that it's where the monastery of St. Catherine's is today. I think that that is a place that was venerated by monks, but, it, but there's not a lot of historical and archaeological evidence around that area that would show that there was a large presence of Israelites there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a look also at what you'd said about Catherine Kenyon, he was with her archaeology and her not naming the, the parts that were found and such. Now, I, I think we need to be careful here because there could be some people who could be the same thing. Ah, well, of course she didn't name it because, you know, she doesn't want it to be that, uh, that the Bible is true in we 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 can't really know that, and we, yeah, we Correct. should be. No, we should be absolutely. Yeah, 
You know what I'm saying. I agree. No, you're absolutely – yes, yes, absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. We don't know what her motivation was. Uh, there's no way. We don't know what her heart or mind – was it her heart and mind? Yeah. Um, you know, we, I, I do know that she, she definitely was not uh, – she didn't have conservative views of the scriptures, so that that's it from her writings, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, all we know is, is how she recorded the archaeology of Jericho, um, so we can only surmise as to why she failed to record uh, the Cypriot pottery. Mm-hmm. Now, do we have any other evidence of a conquest of but some of the cities have been destroyed? Because, I mean, it's pretty much the entire land was supposed to be conquered by Joshua. Well, this did take much longer than justice in the book of Joshua. What else do we have? Right. Well, the actual – that's a great question. Again, Nick, the archaeological record actually bears out what we read in the text because when you read uh, – you read throughout Joshua, they sort of run into some trouble, um, especially after Joshua dies, and we go into the book of Judges, and uh, it says that the very book of Judges says the Israelites failed to completely drive out the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. It says that they, they were determined to live in the land – and uh, that's exactly what happened, is that the Israelites uh, failed to drive them out. And uh, in the judges, we entered to a period of the judges in which we see uh, Canaanite presence. And that is a long period archaeologically for Israel as well. It's about 400 years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we see that the archaeological record is consistent with what the biblical record actually says and that the Israelites were living alongside the Canaanites. And, and, and a lot of times they were practicing um, syncretism. They were practicing, they were worshiping Yahweh alongside of these other gods, which they were condemned. I mean, so there's an article that came out a few years ago in which uh, uh, I think it was in Biblical Archaeology Review, and the, and the question was, did, does Yahweh have a consort? Mm-hmm. And in other words, does, does God have a wife? And in, in some of these Canaanite, discoveries, they discover that, you know, Asherah and Baal, you know, God is portrayed as Baal or, or an Asherah. So, so again, this is exactly what we read in the biblical record, because the Israelites were condemned for doing that, and that's, that's exactly what we see in the archaeological record. They were mm-hmm. trying to worship Yahweh alongside these other gods. Yeah, if I so, could recommend something to the Listeners here, I'm going to try and get him on again sometime to talk about this book, but one that I'm going right now, and he's been on here several times before, one of our favorites. I'm going through John Barton's Old Testament Theology for Christians now, and he does talk a bit, from what I've read so far, about how different Yahweh was from the other gods uh, in the ancient Near East. Oh, absolutely, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he he definitely is different. And uh, you know, the storm god, he mm-hmm. god. Of course, the the famous confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal or Baal uh, is there in, in the Old Testament. And uh, so, you know, God, well, God was the true God. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he he showed himself to be true with uh, with the destruction of the of the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Now we've had Richard Bauckham on here a couple of times, both times. <laughs> Dealing with his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And one of the arguments he uses, if you've read that book, you're familiar with it, is going back and looking at the listing of names in the Gospels and how this matches the first century writing, the time, first century usage of names. And he says, a later writer would not have access to this information and would not be able to make it up, as it were. Is the same thing going on with 
terms that are kind of borrowed from Egyptian languages and such in the Pentateuch? Um, it's possible. I mean, there's always a possibility. I mean, it's uh, it's it's always you know, do we give the text? The benefit of the doubt. Do we, you know, allow the text to speak for itself? There's a lot of assumptions that are built into it. A lot, you know, biblical scholar. There's. I mean, let's just face it. No, no one is absolutely objective. I mean, yeah. I mean everybody has their own uh, views that they want to hold. But uh, the question is, you know, can we be consistent? You know, we. This is where I think the work of Dr. Walton comes in. Is there's a lot of good work, and that is showing the historical context of the biblical record. In other words, looking at it alongside of seeing where it's different. You know, it definitely was. You know, it's kind of like when you when you garden and you, you're gardening for for carrots or or uh, radishes or whatever. When you pull when you pull it up, pull the vegetable up out of the soil, it's going to have some of the dirt on the roots and and certainly the biblical record even though it is unique i i, am, I personally hold to inerrancy and i think the bible is an inerr- the inerrant word of god but in the same sense the bible is also very it's a very earthy book as well and it was uh written in a particular time in a particular place in a particular culture and a particular history historical era and so we really can't understand the biblical record apart from the historical looking at it historically um I think a lot of a lot of misunderstanding, in fact, happens because we don't understand the historical context, and we want to. We jump immediately to uh, we jump immediately to contemporary application without first understanding the historical context of it. So it's possible that definitely, uh, you know, biblical writers later could have incorporated some of the stuff into it, but it just seems it just seems far fetched to me and not necessary. What research? What do, you, what do you think is going on right now that will impact the future of our un, of our understanding of the Exodus and the conquest? I mean, a lot of things. Just, uh, I mean, when you look at uh, just the, the radical, I think philosophy. I mean, just a philosophical worldview and, and how people look at the text itself. These are questions are questions that are important to to Christians. I mean, we we keep these on the table and we sort of raise these questions in, in the academic realm. Um, but the thing that's going to challenge is really just the uh, the fact that we are living in a very apathetic age in which people are sort of disconnected from academic questions or questions about you know really just questions about life in general. I mean, the I mean these 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 things that happen in the Old Testament, you know, they sort of look at it as sort of just a myth. It, it's not even a, a, an issue that they even think about. Uh, so, so definitely, uh, you know, phil- philosophy certainly affects. Uh, it's going to affect our understanding of the Exodus, and not just that, but the entire Bible itself. Um, but I really think, honestly, Nick, um, that it's it sort of goes back to. Augustine and David and the Old Testament, you know, uh, St. Augustine said year, many years, many years ago, uh, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in me. And uh, so how, how is that related to archaeology? Well, it's related to archaeology in this sense that people are searching for meaning and value in this life. And I mean, let's face it. I mean, we're living in an increasingly secular society. People are more and more moving away from God. In fact, the, the I don't know if you've ever seen statistics on this, but the level of people who don't believe in God or who are just non-religious, the number is just continuing to grow. Uh, but the one thing that I do know is that uh, all the other things that promise fulfillment 
really can't deliver. I mean, you look at the look at the pages of the Old Testament. You look at Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, this guy had it all. I mean, I can just test that in my own life. You know, looking at you know, you try everything, you try all kinds of stuff, and nothing is going to fulfill. Nothing is going to fulfill your heart apart from God. Mm-hmm. And where do we learn about God? We learn about God through His Word. And, we, and there's two ways we learn about God through creation. I mean, that's natural revelation, general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. We can study science and. When you study history, that's certainly amazing. That certainly passions me. But we really encounter God in the text itself, and that's where we that's where we find Christ. We we find God in the text, and that's where we learn more specifically about how to, how to how to have a relationship with God. So, I think these stories, because they are connected to eternal principles, they're always going to be relevant. As C.S. Lewis said, anything that's not eternal is eternally out of date. Mm-hmm. I love that quote. <laughs> and uh, so the stories of the Exodus and the conquest and, uh, you know, a lot of the events of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, they're eternal. They're, they, they raise and, and answer eternal questions about who we are, you know, why we're here, and where we're going. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think a theme through the Old Testament, one of the major themes of the Old Testament, is that if you want to understand the future, if you want to understand what the world's going to be like in the future, look to the past. Because the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know how God is going to act in the future, then you look at how he has acted in the past. That is a theme that you see throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, especially in the Torah, in the book of Genesis, in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. In fact, when I, I taught Old Testament for probably 15 years, and uh, one of the things that I would tell my students, and it's absolutely still absolutely true, and it's this. A lot of Christians today, most Christians will have their devotions and they study the New Testament, and that is awesome. We should study the New Testament. Totally get it. I, I love the New Testament. It is wonderful. It's God's Word. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, Nick. Mm-hmm. If you really, truly want to understand and get the most out of the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. Absolutely. And understand. And in order to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand the first five books. They are foundational. So the Torah is foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible. And I think that that is, is you know, hopefully people will uh, – th- these questions about the historicity of the Exodus, the historicity of the patriarchs, and all these types of things will uh, draw them to the text itself and bring them to the Word of God so that they can actually uh, interact with the Bible. Instead of letting somebody else tell them what it says, they can actually read it for themselves. Yeah. I was actually more along the lines of wondering what archaeological research is going on that you think will really shape things in the future. What can we see coming? What do you think we can see coming down the pipe archaeologically? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of things. One of the questions now is, uh, again, I mentioned him earlier. One of my uh, friends and colleagues is uh, Dr. Doug Petrovich, and he just wrote a new book that was published last year, and it has caused quite a controversy. And um, the name of the book is, um, I think it's called The World's First Alphabet. Let me uh, bring it up here, and I'll show you. But Petrovich, if he's right about the Hebrew language, then this is – in fact, I even said it in an article I wrote on on the Epic Archaeology. Um, Petrovich is sort of like the – the it's this is a you know the question I, I have are we in a Rosetta Stone moment with archaeology, uh, especially with Old Testament archaeology, and with Doc, with Petrovich's discovery, and 
I think that we are, actually. Um, I personally think that he's right. I'm not a language scholar, but mm-hmm. uh, Doug believes that he has found uh, the origins of the first, uh, what's called a proto-consonantal script. So linguists and language scholars um, are divided over um, what the first consonantal script is. And so it is a groundbreaking theory about how the Hebrew language originated. There's debate as to whether it came from Ugaritic Mm-hmm. And uh, what Dr. Petrovich says in his book, and the name of the book is The World's Oldest Alphabet, Hebrew as the Language of the First of the Proto-Continental Script. It was published in Jerusalem, and um, a quote from Dr. Eugene Merrill, he says, The origin of the alphabet has been a matter of intense interest from time immemorial. The primitive, pictographic, and cumbersome syllabic forms of written communication that originated in the latter case – at least as early as 3200 B.C., gave way at some point to the incredible, facile, and flexible development of alphabets, an advancement dated and attributed to a variety of times and places. Mm -hmm. The breakthrough as to the question of the origins of the alphabet represented in the book that Petrovich wrote is the fruit of his intensive and extensive research and fastidious attention to detail, his acclaimed expertise in epigraphy, paleography, lexicography, and comparative linguistics and literature has led him to the conviction uh, that of all options one can currently have uh, advanced as the ultimate origin of the alphabet, the identification of Proto-Hebrew is the best candidate. So this would, th- what this is, Nick, if, if the future bears this out and scholarship bears this out to be true, this is a watershed moment. This will be a watershed moment in biblical archaeology mm-hmm. because this will, this will undercut – over a hundred years of higher critical scholarship that started with Spinoza and others and ended up with, uh, you know, uh, Julius Wellhaus and other higher critical scholars uh, arguing for the multiple, you know, authorship of the Pentateuch, J, E, D, and P. If Petrovich is right, then this means that the Israelites, we can not only find them archaeologically, but we find them linguistically. And he has already used and utilized the script to discover the names of some uh, Hebrews already in Egypt, in the Egyptian Sinai, including Moses, the name of Moses. He's used the script to decipher some inscriptions found on the Sinai Peninsula. And the inscription that he discovered is this. The literal translation is this. The year here's, – here's the literal translation that was found in the Sinai Peninsula in a turquoise mine. It says the years of our bounds, our bound servitude lingered. In other words, we were enslaved people, but Moses provoked astonishment, and we were set free. Mm-hmm. This is the literal translation. Mm-hmm. So, if Petrovich's analysis is correct, and he is a brilliant scholar, then this is going to be a watershed moment. So, this is the thing to watch. I would, I would encourage people to check out uh, Douglas Petrovich. You can go on ABR's website. You can also get it on Amazon, and I think you can get it on uh, this website. is Carta in Jerusalem, C-A-R-T-A, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's quite an expensive book. I think it's like eighty bucks for the book, but um, it's uh, it's called the world's first alphabet, mm-hmm. Hebrew as the language of the proto-consonantal script. Yeah. So uh, this is something to watch out for. You know, Ted, there was a time a few years or so ago when. <laughs> The skeptics would have said there was no reference to, say, King David, for instance. And back in that time, I think we probably were right. But now I think we found free references to David outside of the Bible, of course. Do you yes. think we can expect the same to happen with figures like Moses and such in the near future? 
Yes, uh, I do. Um, again, uh, the, the evidence is going to be fragmentary, but we've, if, again, if Petrovich is right, then we already have an inscription with Moses' name on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this could really, uh, this is going to really be a, a big event in, in uh, Near Eastern archaeology. The fact that uh, Petrovich has discovered the proto-consonal script, and he says it's Hebrew, and uh, makes the connection. In fact, you can see the connection, but it is being vociferously debated. The reason why scholars have responded so uh, vociferously uh, to Petrovich is because of the implications, because he actually is a scholar that has weight. I mean, he got his PhD at the University of Toronto in Egyptian, Middle Egyptian, and he is arguing that Moses really did exist, and not only did he exist, but he's found evidence that he existed. So, uh, who knows what will co- who knows what else will come out of this? Uh, but certainly, it is possible that we could find uh, some new descriptions of the uh, of Moses and the Israelites. But what we've already discovered so far is quite remarkable. And that's suppose there's someone out there who's listening in. They were kind of like you at a young age, and this podcast has helped them get bitten by the archaeological archaeology bug, as it were, what steps would you recommend they follow? Um, yeah, they could definitely, uh, you know, depending on what route they wanted to take, mm-hmm. if they wanted to be an archaeologist, there's a lot of great schools out there. Um, you know, seminary training, you could you could uh, focus in the languages. Uh, there's a couple of different routes you could do. One of the things that if I had, to, if I had uh, two or three lifetimes to, to do over again, I would go back and I would focus in... Um, and uh, the some of the Mesopotamian languages, like Akkadian cuneiform, uh, because that's one area that interests me a lot is uh, early Mesopotamian history with Iraq. So they could follow the language route, really, uh, you know, get up on the languages and learn Hebrew and learn some other Semitic languages, uh, you know, Aramaic and Arabic and things like that. Because a lot of the new discoveries, I personally think, are going to be in libraries and archives and different uh, inscriptions. And uh, so, so archaeology not only is it, are we using the spade? Are we using the actual, you know, dig the artifacts of, or, you know, tools of digging? But we're also using language, and language is a, is a great way to get at the past. And so, there's a lot of uh, inscriptions and writings that have left to be ciphered. So they could go that route and study languages. University of Pennsylvania, University of Chicago are great schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another one, I believe, uh, Southwest Seminary actually has a uh, department in archaeology, mm-hmm. and there's several Bible colleges around as well uh, that I believe there's one up in Tennessee as well uh, that has a good archaeology department. I think it's Lee University mm-hmm. up, in, up in Tennessee. Uh, so they could go the Bible college route, or they could focus on uh, the actual just, you know, just this dirt archaeology in which you, you kind of studied the archaeology and get involved. You can actually get involved also with uh, with Associates for Biblical Research. We have digs that go on. Uh, in fact, this summer, uh, they're going to be digging at the site of Shiloh, the site of the first tabernacle of Israel. As they came out of the wilderness, uh, they're, they're actually digging. We have positively identified the site of Shiloh. And uh, they're going to be uh, trying to locate uh, – I mean, they're just looking at the whole site. But one of the questions that they're going to be looking at is if if and where the temple is or tabernacle was located. And you can go as a volunteer. You don't have to necessarily be – you know, go to school to be an archaeologist. You can actually serve as a volunteer uh, to go in an archaeological excavation. I would really recommend people do that because – 
you really see uh, archaeology from a, from a hands-on experience. And you get to dig in the dirt, and you get to discover new things that no one has ever found before. And that's that's always exciting. And they don't even and know makes, how to makes, so, Go ahead. No, it makes the Bible come alive. It really does. And they don't even need to learn how to use a whip, do they? No, they don't. They could, but they don't have to. <laughs> Now, Ted, um, we've had a great conversation. We could have talked so much more about this, but unfortunately, time is not on our side here. Uh, if someone does want to find out about, more about you, like this, folks, even if someone out there who says, I'm still skeptical, I've got some questions I'd like to ask this guy and such, do you have a blog, an email, wait, a website, way people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Absolutely. I'll be glad to answer any questions we'll have. It's uh, Ted. TED at epicarchaeology.org. They can email me there. And uh, my email address is also on the website. You can go to epicarchaeology.org, mm-hmm. click on About, and go to Ted Wright. And my email address is there. Uh, they can email me directly. It's Ted at epicarchaeology.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks can also go on the website and sign up for our blog. Uh, they just, uh, just go to the main webpage, scroll down about midway, and there's a place that says Keep Updated. And uh, you can just enter your email address. We won't send you any spam. It's just basically whenever there's a new archaeological article that comes out, you'll just get it in your inbox mm-hmm. so people can go there. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Barters audience? I know. Just uh, uh, thanks again, Nick, for having me on. It was uh, great to be here, and uh, thank you for all the great questions. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to thank you for coming on, and I do hope we'll see you back here sometime. It's really great getting to catch up with you again. Sounds good. I look forward to it. I remind everyone that uh, next week we're going to have Dr. Doug Grotyson talking about walking through twilight, a personal look at how he's handling the tragedy of his wife's mental illness and such. I want to see how he's doing since the book. Are they even still with twilight? Maybe even with darkness right now? I don't know, but we're going to find out. Until then, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.